Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in and save the cool air. Oh, Yes. We should read that story sometime, shouldn't we? Cool air. Yes, but not tonight. Tonight we... Well, come in and know that you are welcome to the District of Wonders, to our home, to the nook, to... What? To Tales to Terrify, of course. I'm Lawrence Santoro, but you must have known that because you rang the bell. Please, settle, grab a drink, scoop some treats... And relax. I have a sad thing to do tonight. You probably already know about it, but it is a thing I must mention. Richard Matheson died this past Sunday. He was 87. A good long life by most reckoning, and he left us a body of work that will endure. A half century of it. If you've not read him, then you should. If you've not read him... Then you know him by the films made from his work. The Shrinking Man, I Am Legend, others, his more than a dozen works for The Twilight Zone, including Bill Shatner's iconic role in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And we remember his story that became the TV film Duel, 
and that's the one that introduced Steven Spielberg to the world. His daughter, Allie, wrote of Richard Matheson's passing, My beloved father passed away yesterday at home, surrounded by the people and things he loved. He was funny, brilliant, loving, generous, kind, creative, and the most wonderful father ever. I miss you and love you forever, Pop, and I know you are now happy and healthy in a beautiful place full of love and joy you always knew was there. Well, thank you for bringing ordinary people to the forefront of your work. Thank you for the many worlds you showed us. There is precious little else for me to do tonight because, well, it's summer, and we have a journey to make this evening. I begin with the usual pleas, of course. Stop by the website, TalesToTerrify.com. Make an offering, I won't say to tithe us, but neither will I discourage it. Stop by Facebook and friend us because it would be friendly, wouldn't it? Yes, and we do want to be friendly here, don't we? And stop by iTunes and tell the world about us. Then settle in for tonight. Are you set? Chum by your side? All right. Before story hour, let us turn again to our old buddy Kevin Lucia as he takes us to summer school for another class in our Horror 101 course of study. Professor? Stark and gray, the old house rose from the ground as if it had grown there. The car came to a sudden stop and the motor died. Philippa and Danny stepped slowly out. The only sounds were a few lonely bird calls in the wind. It was not a large house. The nubbly flint walls were two stories high, broken by only a few narrow windows. The pointed roof was of faded red tiles, covered by a yellowish lichen, and extended for a foot beyond the walls. There were tiles missing in places, and some of the bricks in the two chimneys were gone. It was desolate. It was lonely. It was almost forbidding. Yet it did not seem derelict. There was a feeling of life about the place, as if it had not been left for centuries to crumble and decay. Something, Danny felt, was waiting there, and suddenly he had the uncanny sensation that it was waiting for him. He tried to shake these thoughts away as they walked around the house. It was rectangular in shape, the long side facing over the hill, down through slender, scattered trees to hills below, had a few windows. The other long side, with the doorway, faced into a dense pine woods and had no windows at all. Over the doorway was a lopsided arbor made of twisted tree branches, covered with twining brown vines. Philippa took a large key out of her handbag and fitted it into the rusty lock. Neither of them said a word. The key fit beautifully, and the door swung open, squeaking. Cautiously they stepped inside into a short, narrow passageway only about six feet long. They followed it to the right, into a large room. It was so dark inside that at first they could hardly see a thing, but as their eyes adjusted to the darkness, the room began to take shape around them. They could make out a great stone fireplace against the left wall, with a mantle made of a rough-hewn log. There was a spinning wheel in one corner, and a bookcase built into the wall. 
In front of the fireplace were two heavy, sagging chairs and a round table. On the other side of the fireplace, behind a door, was a very steep, narrow, winding stairway, and next to this was another door, thick and heavy and ancient. Black iron hinges in strange, curving shapes held it to the wall. Danny was fascinated. There seemed to be words carved into the wall, but it was too dark to see what they were. Cobwebs, naturally, were everywhere. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales of Terrify. Once again, I'm your host, Kevin Lucia, and for this podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've decided in the development of this series, for each strand of the horror genre, the house, the beast, the ghost, to take one podcast and dedicate it to featuring a few young adult novels and how they deal with these motifs. Now, examining young adult horror, like examining horror itself, is a pretty big task. It's a genre that has grown greatly in the last 20 years, and that in itself could be an entire series. And tonight, I'm not going to examine young adult horror in general. Uh, That I'm going to save for a different podcast in October of 2013, because every year during Halloween week, some of you may or may not know this, Author Neil Gaiman promotes what he calls All Hallows Read. Uh, It's an initiative that encourages people to give other people scary books for free during the week of Halloween. Now, in support of this initiative, in 2013, I'll offer a special Horror 101 that's simply going to examine young adult horror with the title, Why Young Adult Horror? But for this podcast, I am going to look at three young adult haunted house novels and look at how they have taken this story, this gothic house story and adapted it for their young adult audience. Because it's interesting to me, when something has become part of our cultural lexicon, when it's become so entrenched in our culture, especially popular culture, it then becomes part of our children's culture as well. And this is not new. I have to preface this, something I'll go into greater detail in future podcasts when I talk about folklore and fairy tales. Um, But this isn't new, the idea of telling scary stories to children. Grimm's fairy tales come to mind. Little Red Riding Hood, don't go off the path in the woods because then the big bad wolf will eat you. Or Cinderella, if you're mean and nasty like Cinderella's stepsisters, then someday birds will come along and peck out your eyes. Also, the idea of a revered member of the family, maybe a grandmother or a grandfather, telling scary ghost stories by the campfire is something that's not new either. There's an interesting story that I'll post a link on the Horror 101 Facebook called An Evening's Entertainment by M.R. James that deals with this classic trope of a revered granddame who's thrilling her grandchildren with a ghost story a regional one, warning children off a certain path in the woods because of its macabre history. So telling scary stories to children, it isn't new. It's not something that's just recently been invented, obviously. But what's interesting is this, what I've noticed, is that once something becomes an established trope, it becomes part of our cultural language, it's not long before you see it packaged for young adults and teens in novels. Now, something else I also have to mention as an aside that we'll go into greater detail in that October podcast, this development of the young adult genre, novels with you know things stamped on it, young adult, teen, 
is something that's relatively recent in the last 20 or 30 years. Because it's interesting, when I hear veteran horror writers talk, and they talk about how they discovered the horror genre, they don't necessarily reference a young adult teen novel. I remember very clearly when Tom Montilone was speaking to my students, my high school students, and he talked about when he first encountered the bizarre and the macabre and the dark fantastic, he didn't necessarily reference children writers, young adult teen writers. He did mention Ray Bradbury, and he holds a special place in there. He's accessible to all generations, and we'll be featuring him tonight. But what he mentioned is he came across a collection in his library by some guy named Edgar Allan Poe. Then he found a collection by some guy named H.P. Lovecraft, which is interesting that librarians and English teachers and book lovers have always recognized there's something about the macabre and the strange and the weird that the kids will always be able to. Uh, and that's a way to excite reading. But he didn't mention a young adult novel that turned him on to horror. Now, for me in the 80s, the wonderful, lovely 80s, I didn't come across Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Lovecraft. I came across the Alan Schwartz scary tales to tell by the campfire that had those wonderfully disturbing illustrations. And in the 90s, I'm sure many people can say, oh, I I grew up on Goosebumps. So this is something I think is relatively recent. And that the Haunted House story would pop up in YA novels should be of no surprise. It's a no-brainer. Every town has a spook house with a ghost story attached to it. It's one of the oldest tales. I think, again, it's, it's something that's become so entrenched in our youth culture. How many even cartoons do we see with a spooky house or a haunted house? And we all seem to recognize that very early as young adults. I think as kids, we all remember that house at the end of the street or that house around the corner. It's you know, been abandoned for years, and it's broken down, and the, the windows are all boarded up, and we invent tales about how it's haunted or you know some old evil witch lived there. I even have my own spook house story. Uh, we'll keep it short. Again, I'll post a link to this. But I wrote about this experience for flamesrising.com, but when I was at in college, my freshman sophomore year, a bunch of us had the, the series of experiences in this old abandoned house out in Cooperstown, New York. And of course, at that time, we were we were in college. We were a little more sophisticated, but still, it was an abandoned house, and it looked old and dilapidated and kind of eerie. So our inclinations were it's like a natural inclination. Let's go explore it. So it's not a mystery that the haunted house story would thrive in young adult culture. Now, like contemporary adult horror, the possible entries for young adult horror are nearly limitless. There's so many books that I could choose from. So for just this one podcast, I decided to pick three works. The first one was one that I remember reading as a kid. Um, And again, when you're talking about young adult novels, when I first encountered a spooky book, Along with the, the tales to tell by a campfire, this one, the one I read the excerpt from at the beginning of the podcast, Blackbriar by William Slater, is probably one of the first teen novels I read that could be said to be trafficking in this gothic horror, this eerie um, atmosphere. Uh, the second one is one that was recommended to me, and that is The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs. I believe that was referenced by Joe Hill as being one of his favorite novels growing up as a kid. And the third is one, as I mentioned, he may not necessarily be referenced as a young adult a novelist, but he's a writer who's so accessible to all generations, and he took 
the haunted house and glorified it, made it a fantasy uh, in From the Dust Return by Ray Bradbury. So those are the three books that we're going to look at tonight for our young adult entry into the house motif. Our first novel, Blackbriar by William Slater, I read in eighth grade. To be honest in saying it's kind of the first novel I read with a complex plot that I felt chills. I'm like, well, this is scary. This is eerie. Uh, it's the story of an orphan teenager named Danny Chilton uh, who lives with his uh, guardian, uh, Philippa, in London. Philippa has been dreaming of breaking away from the crowded London streets, you know, city life for some time. And when she discovers an ad in a magazine about a cottage out in the country, it's cheap, uh, and she thinks this is a dream come true. And of course, we've all heard that before, right? Uh, because in the horror genre, sometimes things are too good to be true. And of course, once they arrive, all the requisite staples of the spooky Gothic house story are trotted out for us. It's a gloomy and ancient stone cottage with a creepy basement and strange carvings in the basement door, a list of names and dates, last name Mary Peachy, lacking a date. So, of course, we already have a mystery here. Who is Mary Peachy? Why these names carved into the door? Why dates? And also, there's superstition in the surrounding village about the cottage, which is named Blackbriar. No one wants to talk about it, and as soon as anyone hears that Danny and Flippa are now living there, they clam right up. Don't want to talk about the house's history. So it's a spooky old ancient house with mysterious names carved in the basement door, and it's shunned by the surrounding villagers as well. And it's not long before this strangeness blooms. And again, this is something we'll examine a little bit in greater detail in that October podcast, but this is one of the things I think differentiates a lot of teen fiction from adult fiction is simply its pacing. Uh, there's a little bit less time devoted to character development, a little bit less time devoted in exposition, and we move into the action a lot quicker. But the strangeness in Blackbriar begins with little things. Philippa's cat immediately begins acting strange. Philippa finds a strange hand-carven doll in that home, and it spooks her. She has a very visceral reaction to it, and wants Danny just immediately to throw it out. Doesn't even want to touch it. Of course, he doesn't throw it out. You know, he keeps it uh, because he's intrigued by it. Then one night, the very first night there, a strange man shows up at Blackbriar's door asking after Mary Peachy, which is that last name carved on the door. He seems to think that Mary Peachy um, actually still lives there. Also, at night, Danny sees fires uh, being burned out over the, the field. There's chanting going on out over the hills, and he senses there's some sort of ritual going on, you know, some sort of ritual or a ceremony that he sees from a distance. And during the day, he comes across, you know, these fires, uh, the remnants of these fires. And, of course, Danny himself starts having these strange dreams of the former inhabitants of Blackbriar, uh, people who seem to be sick and dying with some unknown disease. And he wakes repeatedly to the sound of a young woman's musical laughter fading off into the distance. And of course we have Mary Peachy, who has no date, so we have that connection there. 
And Danny is changing. He's becoming more independent. He's becoming more free-thinking, more physically fit as he adapts to country life. He's met a local girl who shares his love for mystery. He's intrigued by the unknown. And this, of course, evokes some tension between him and Philippia. And like any good adult novel, this is what lifts Blackbriar, in my opinion, above, say, the ooga-booga scares of some of the Goosebumps novels or the snap endings of the Hardy Boys. Uh, This novel is just as much a coming-of-age novel, you know, a novel about a young man who's finding himself, as it is a spooky old cottage that's maybe or maybe not haunted. It's about a teenager who's struggling for his identity under a loving but slightly oppressive and maybe a little possessive guardian who's struggling with her diminishing role in his life. So the house and its mysteries, supernatural or not, simply becomes a catalyst for this change and this growth. Blackbriar hovers between the natural and supernatural gothic. Most of the mystery is explained for us by the end of the story. Blackbriar used to be a pestilence home, where those in the Middle Ages afflicted with the bubonic plague were confined and quarantined to die. That's where the names of the door come from. All the folks that were quarantined there and their deaths. And Danny and Lark eventually discover the skeletons of these people laid to rest in an underground passage that they find at the back of the basement of Blackbriar, which leads from Blackbriar to a nearby ancestral manor. Now, Mary Peachy was an unfortunate village girl who, again, in kind of a classic gothic trope, um, was convicted of witchcraft. They believe for some reason, they don't go into great detail about this, for some reason they believe that she brought the plague down on the townspeople, and she was sentenced to the pestle house with everyone else to die for her sins. Now here's where it lingers between supernatural and natural, because this part of the story is never explained, and it's kind of nicely done, because it leaves us to wonder, you know, maybe something else was going on there. Because according to the story and the legend, despite being confined in a cabin full of those sick and dying of the plague, Mary Peachy never catches the plague. And after everyone dies, she lives in seclusion in the cottage for the rest of her life, and nobody ever sees her ever again. And there's no record of her dying, and there's no way of telling, of course, in the, the bounds of this story, whether or not one of her skeletons is one of the skeletons down in the tomb. Um, so we don't really know what happened to her body. And this is the supernatural element that's not explained away from us. You know, Mary Peachy's ultimate fate. And of course we have that musical, mischievous laughter that by the end of the novel, Danny has identified that as not being menacing at all, that he keeps hearing every time he wakes up from his dreams. All the other mysterious occurrences around the house and the late night fires and chanting and the ceremonies and eventually Philippia and and Lark's kidnapping um, gets explained away, uh, gets put down to a local witch's coven. Uh, that has apparently worshipped and revered Mary Peachy this whole time. Um, but they're not really... There's nothing supernatural there. They're just a bunch of bored, deluded locals um, who worship Mary Peachy. Uh, they're trying to invoke her power, and they're not really witches. Um, they just have delusions of grandeur. So in a classic, natural, gothic 
motif, those things get explained away as human agency. The next novel is The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs, and this is a very classic type of story. Louis Barnevelt is a 10-year-old orphan, going to live with his uncle Jonathan after his parents' death in a car accident. Louis has always dreamed of adventure and danger, so even though he's saddened by his parents' death, um, he's excited to be going on this adventure, going to live with the quote-unquote black sheep of the family, a practicing magician who lives in an old, mysterious manor full of hidden passageways and secret rooms. Upon his arrival, Lewis is quickly charmed by his Uncle Jonathan and his Uncle Jonathan's neighbor lady friend, a Mrs. Zimmerman. They're fun, they're quirky, and, oh yes, by the way, practicing magicians, but white magic, of course, white, fun, helpful magic. But a mystery looms, as Lewis notices both his uncle and Mrs. Zimmerman curiously engrossed with something in the walls of the home. A ticking sound, like a clock hidden somewhere in the depths of this manor. Eventually it comes out in the course of the story that, surprise, surprise, the house was originally owned by an evil sorcerer who had created a doomsday clock and left it behind, a clock that's hidden somewhere in the house that would someday herald his return and the end of the world. And in the course of our novel, apparently, time is drawing short, because they can hear the clock ticking much louder than before, and as the novel progresses, it's ticking louder and louder. And then, of course, comes the crucial mistake, a little bit of youthful hubris, if you will. Kind of, again, this cautionary tale about dabbling in things you shouldn't dabble in, or, you know, a cautionary tale about pride. Um, in an effort to impress a fair-weathered friend that Lewis has met at the local cemetery at night, Lewis uses some of his uncle's spells and accidentally releases the evil sorcerer's wife from her tomb. Soon enough, a mysterious new neighbor moves in next door, and the shenanigans begin, ending with a conflict between good and evil in Lewis's new home. In many ways, this book is much more of a dark, supernatural, suspenseful fantasy, more than horror, really. And while Blackbriar is aimed at, say, older teens, The House with a Clock on His Wall is more suitable for adolescents. Uh, it's much less complex. Um, I wouldn't call it sh shallow by any means, but it's a very simple good versus evil novel. Kind of a little cautionary tale there, because, you know, we shouldn't be so eager to impress our friends that we delve into our elders' secrets and practice magics that we have no understanding of. And it's more aimed at that younger market, I think, that has that nice tension and suspense of this conflict between good and evil, but there's far more uncertainty in Blackbriar as to the outcome and to the fate uh, of some of the characters than there is in the house and the clock of the walls. You know, you kind of have you know, no doubt that by the end of the book it's going to be wrapped up for us. And again, we'll look at this at a later date, but that's also often a differentiating factor between young adult fiction and adult fiction is the endings are a little... Even in Blackbriar, the ending is kind of neatly tied up for us, you know, uh, in a reasonable amount of time. It's not necessarily as complex and maybe layered as the ending of a, a grown-up novel would be. And for our final novel... Allow me, once again, to read you another excerpt. 
The house was a puzzle inside an enigma, inside a mystery, for it encompassed silences, each one different, and beds, each a different size, some having lids. Some ceilings were high enough to allow flights with rests where shadows might hang upside down. The dining room nested thirteen chairs, each number thirteen so no one would feel left out of the distinctions such numbers implied. The chandeliers above were shaped from the tears of souls in torment at sea five hundred years lost, and the basement cellar kept five hundred vintage-year bins and strange names on the wine tucked therein, and empty cubbies for future visitors who disliked beds or the high-ceiling perches. A network of webways was used by the one and only spider, dropping down from above and up from below, so the entire house was a sounding spinneret tapestry played on by the ferociously swift Iraq, seen one moment by the wine bins and the next in a plummeting rush to the storm-haunted garret, swift and soundless, shuttling the webs, repairing the strands. How many rooms, cubicles, closets, and bins in all? No one knew. To say one thousand would exaggerate, but one hundred was nowhere near truth. One hundred and fifty-nine seemed an agreeable amount, and each was empty for a long time, summoning occupants across the world, yearning to pull lodgers from the clouds. The house was a ghost arena, yearning to be haunted, and as the weather circled earth for a hundred years, the house became known, and across the world the dead who had lain down for long naps sat up in cold surprise, and wished for stranger occupations than being dead, sold off their ghastly trades, and prepared for flight. That was a bit of From the Dust Returned by Ray Bradbury. Now, his inclusion at the end of this podcast, I hope, is not a, a, a result of me shoehorning him in just because of my love of everything Bradbury. But whether or not you would say that Bradbury is young adult fair, he certainly captures, uh, I think, the wonder and the fantasy of being a young adult. Um, in this story, we have... Just like every other town, Greentown, Illinois, has its own haunted house. But like everything else told by Ray Bradbury, this takes the haunted house motif and looks at it through a different lens. Not through the lens of the macabre as in evil or dark or foreboding or disturbing, but kind of a... a glorification of the dark fantastic. This, in many ways, is a dark fantasy as well, far more complex uh, than the house with a clock in its walls. In this case, From the Dust Returned is, is kind of a celebration of the fact that we all have a house in our neighborhood that's old and spooky and that we all want to go explore. And, you know, Bradbury's really, you know, hinging on that element in us. What is it that, what are we, why are we fascinated with those dark and recessed uh, corridors in these old houses and the attics and the basements? And why do we as children seek these things out? And like everything else Bradbury does, he, you know, celebrates this. And that's, that's what I guess this book is, is, it's a haunted house book, but it's more a celebration of the haunted house. And in this book, his idea is that 
at the end of this age of knowledge, the 21st century, because man has become so inundated with reason and logic, and just as, as many people are starting to disbelieve in faith and religions, because of that encroaching disbelief, people are now disbelieving in the supernatural in general, and ghosts and goblins and demons and vampires and creatures of the night of all kinds are suddenly looking for refuge, because slowly a wave of disbelief and fantasy is sweeping across the world, and they have all fled to this house in Greentown, Illinois, to seek refuge, because they have nowhere else to go, because nobody believes in them anymore. Uh, and again, uh, just the very tone of this novel is a celebration of all things Haunted House. It's also in true Bradbury form, like in The Martian Chronicles, like in Dandelion Wine and The Illustrated Man. It's not a unified, cohesive novel like, say, Something Wicked This Way Comes. This is a novel in stories. It's newer material written with previously published short stories on the October country and across the years, stitched together in this panoramic view of this wonderful family, capital F, the family. Um, maybe they're vampires, maybe they're not. They drink blood, they fly, they live at night. And the celebration of them and their strangeness, and again, like so many works of young adult horror, which we'll examine in some greater detail, it deals with displacement. We have a young narrator named Timothy, who's kind of our... Our version of Douglas Spaulding and Dandelion Wine, here's Timothy, who's a human orphan, who was laid on our doorstep one day. So, like Blackbriar, Danny's an orphan, trying to find himself. In a lesser degree, like the house with a clock in its walls, because Lewis is an orphan, who now has to live with his uncle. Timothy is a human orphan, who is grown up living with creatures of the macabre, creatures of the night. And there's still that yearning to belong, yearning to be part of something that you're not, and feeling as an outsider. So, again, there was something we can examine in greater detail in the October podcast on why young adult horror. But there's no surprise, I don't think. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that in these three books, that outsider motif is very powerful. It's very prevalent. We've come to the end of another edition of Horror 101. And in a new feature that I started last time, I'd like to offer you some recommendations for further reading. Charting the history of the horror genre is kind of like charting the history of the world. I'm never going to be able to cover all the works that I really would like to include, so along the way I'm going to offer some supplemental uh, reading for you. The first, not necessarily a classic horror novel, but because we mentioned William Slater tonight, we have to mention The House of Stairs by William Slater. It's a dystopian novel, and it's a house in name only, but it's such a disquieting, disturbing, unflinching look at humanity at its worst. It deals with your thought control and behavior control and conformity and free will uh, that I have to mention. it uh, Again, a very foundational work for me uh, as a teenager. And the other two novels I'm going to recommend are very classic haunted house, ghost story novels, gothic novels, The Fall of Never and The Floating Staircase by Ronald Malfi. 
Fall of Never has been re-released by Sam Hain Publishing, um, and again, it's a very classic gothic tale about family, hidden secrets in the supernatural, and mysterious deaths. Uh, the Floating Staircase is perhaps one of the best novels that I've ever read, um, and it deals with a classic haunted house story. So it straddles the line there between a haunted house story and a ghost story because of the haunting, but it's just such a wonderful book. Uh, like everything else that Ronald Malfi writes, it's not just a ghost story. It's about a man, you know, trying to find himself struggling with his past loss. Um, and I, I can't say enough. And I believe Floating Stair, Staircase was nominated, um, for, either recommended or nominated for the Stoker Award a couple of years ago. And it's just, it's just a fabulous novel. And I, I highly recommend both of those for further reading. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time... I encourage you to keep reading, and please look us up on Facebook at Studying the Horror Genre um, on Facebook, and go ahead and add us and like us. Thanks, Kevin. That uh, brings back memories. Yes, Ray called such books as The Martian Chronicles and Dandelion Wine his accidental novels. And while my grandfather raised me on Poe, M.R. James Lovecraft, and, and other adult writers of horror and darkly supernatural fiction, I found Ray Bradbury all on my own. Through him I discovered so-called young adult dark literature— I still enjoy it. And, Kevin, by the way, I just picked up a Kindle copy of Blackbriar, and I'm looking forward to it. That happens every time you're here. Hmm. Okay. Fiction. You know, when I returned to the United States after spending several years adventuring on behalf of our military in distant lands— a friend and I bought a 14-foot John boat. Look it up. We got some camping gear and entrusted our lives and fortunes to the waters that flowed west and south from the Golden Triangle in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the general goal being to reach the Gulf of Mexico via the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, Huckleberry Finn sort of stuff, you know, drifting southward with the current, lying on your back nights watching the stars slide, letting geology and geography do the work. Well, as Huck and Jim learned, river trips are not that easy. There were incidents en route, near drownings, guns, jail. One guy we met in a West Virginia bar who wanted to go blow some people up, and we decided to go along and see what happened. Nothing did. But well, I guess that was the subtextual point of the whole endeavor. We never reached the gulf. But I have built a tale or two from those weeks adrift in my youth. So I trust none of us is afraid of a little boating, because tonight we begin a two-week river trip. You know, our archives are woefully shy of Algernon Blackwood tales— 
We did a short piece of his called The Woman's Ghost Story back in show 67, but that has been that. Well, tonight we amend our ways and begin spinning one of Mr. Blackwood's signature novellas, The Willows. Some words about Mr. Blackwood. He was born in 1869 in Shooter's Hill, a part of Kent that's now been absorbed into southeast London. He went to Wellington College, moved to Canada, where, as writers-to-be are wont to do, he worked at a variety of jobs. On a milk farm, he operated a hotel, went to New York City, where he was a bartender, a model, a private secretary, a businessman, a violin teacher, and a reporter for the New York Times. Then, in his late thirties, he moved back to England and began writing stories of the supernatural at which he was eminently successful, becoming one of the most prolific writers of ghostly tales in the English language, with at least ten original collections to his name. He also made appearances on both radio and television to tell those tales. In addition, he wrote fourteen novels, several children's books, and some plays. Tonight's tale is typical Blackwood. He was a lover of the outdoors and of nature— he skied, climbed mountains, canoed, hunted. The outdoors and nature, as it is and as he bends it to the supernatural, create a beautifully dark mise-en-scene for tonight's story, The Willows. As I read and as I listen to it, I go back to my own river journey. The morning sun burning off the night mists from the river, Dark nights camped on islands that seem alive with things long gone. And, well, we'll hear. Ah, by the way, Blackwood spends time setting up his tales. We get to know the people and the places we'll inhabit for the story's course. Trust me, that knowledge usually pays off handsomely. And it certainly does in this one. Here is part one of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. After leaving Vienna, and long before you come to Budapest, the Danube enters a region of singular loneliness and desolation, where its waters spread away on all sides regardless of a main channel, and the country becomes a swamp for miles upon miles, covered by a vast sea of low willow bushes. On the big maps, this deserted area is painted in a fluffy blue, growing fainter in color as it leaves the banks, and across it may be seen in large straggling letters the word Sumfe, meaning marshes. In high flood, this great acreage of sand, shingle beds, and willow-grown islands is almost topped by the water, but in normal seasons the bushes bend and rustle in the free winds, showing their silver leaves to the sunshine in an ever-moving plain of bewildering beauty. These willows never attain to the dignity of trees, 
They have no rigid trunks. They remain humble bushes, with rounded tops and soft outlines swaying on slender stems that answer to the least pressure of the wind, supple as grasses and so continually shifting that they somehow give the impression that the entire plain is moving and alive. For the wind sends waves rising and falling over the whole surface, waves of leaves instead of waves of water. Green swells like the sea, too, until the branches turn and lift, and then silvery white as their underside turns to the sun. Happy to slip beyond the control of the stern banks, the Danube here wanders about at will among the intricate network of channels intersecting the islands everywhere with broad avenues, down which the waters pour with a shouting sound, making whirlpools, eddies, and foaming rapids, tearing at the sandy banks, carrying away masses of shore and willow clumps, and forming new islands innumerably which shift daily in size and shape and possess, at best, an impermanent life, since the flood time obliterates their very existence. Properly speaking, this fascinating part of the river's life begins soon after leaving Presburg, and we, in our Canadian canoe, with gypsy tent and frying pan on board, reached it on the crest of a rising flood about mid-July. That very same morning, when the sky was reddening before sunrise, we had slipped swiftly through still-sleeping Vienna, leaving a couple of hours later on a mere patch of smoke against the blue hills of the Wiener Vault. On the horizon, we had breakfasted below, Feischemend, under a grove of birch trees roaring on the wind, and had then swept on the tearing current past Orth, Hainburg, Petronell, the old Roman Carnuntum of Marcus Aurelius, and so under the frowning heights of Felsen, on a spur of the Carpathians, where the march steals in quietly from the left and the frontier is crossed between Austria and Hungary. Racing along at twelve kilometers an hour soon took us well into Hungary, and the muddy waters, sure sign of flood, sent us aground on many a shingle bed, and twisted us like a cork in many a sudden belching whirlpool before the towers of Presburg. Hungarian, Bouchene, showed against the sky, and then the canoe, leaping like a spirited horse, flew at top speed under the gray walls, negotiated safely the sunken chain of the Fliegendebrecke ferry, turned the corner sharply to the left and plunged on yellow foam into the wilderness of islands, sandbanks, and swampland beyond, the land of the willows. The change came suddenly, as when a series of bioscope pictures snaps down on the streets of a town and shifts without warning into the scenery of lake and forest. We entered the land of desolation on wings, and in less than half an hour there was neither boat nor fishing hut nor red roof nor any single sign of human habitation and civilization within sight. The sense of remoteness from the world of humankind, the utter isolation, the fascination of this singular world of willows, winds, and waters instantly laid its spell upon us both, so that we allowed laughingly to one another that we ought by right to have held some special kind of passport to admit us, and that we had, somewhat audaciously, come without asking leave into a separate little kingdom of wonder and magic, a kingdom that was reserved for the use of others who had a right to it, with everywhere unwritten warnings to trespassers for those who had the imagination to discover them. Though still early in the afternoon, the ceaseless buffetings of a most tempestuous wind made us feel wary, and we at once began casting about for a suitable camping ground for the night. But the bewildering character of the islands made landing difficult. The swirling flood carried us inshore and then swept us out again. 
The willow branches tore our hands as we seized them to stop the canoe, and we pulled many a yard of sandy bank into the water, before at length we shot with a great sideways blow from the wind into a back water, and managed to beach the bows in a cloud of spray. Then we lay panting and laughing after our exertions on the hot yellow sand, sheltered from the wind and in the full blaze of a scorching sun, a cloudless blue sky above, and an immense army of dancing, shouting willow bushes, closing in from all sides, shining with spray and clapping their thousand little hands as though to applaud the success of our efforts. "'What a river!' I said to my companion, thinking of all the way we had traveled from the source in the black forest, and how he had often been obliged to wade and push in the upper shallows at the beginning of June. "'Won't stand much nonsense now, will it?' he said, pulling the canoe a little farther into safety up the sand, and then composing himself for a nap. I lay by his side, happy and peaceful in the bath of the elements, water, wind, sand, and the great fire of the sun, thinking of the long journey that lay behind us, and of the great stretch before us to the Black Sea, and how lucky I was to have such a delightful and charming traveling companion as my friend, the Swede. We had made many similar journeys together, but the Danube, more than any other river I knew, impressed us from the very beginning with its aliveness. From its tiny bubbling entry into the world among the pinewood gardens of Donau Esching, until this moment when it began to play the great river game of losing itself among the deserted swamps, unobserved, unrestrained, it had seemed to us like following the groan of some living creature, sleepy at first, but later developing violent desires as it became conscious of its deep soul. It rolled like some huge fluid being through all the countries we had passed, holding our little craft on its mighty shoulders, playing roughly with us sometimes, yet always friendly and well-meaning, till at length we had come inevitably to regard it as the great personage. How indeed could it be otherwise, since it told us so much of its secret life? At night we heard it singing to the moon as we lay in our tent, uttering that odd, sibilant note peculiar to self, and said to be caused by the rapid tearing of the pebbles along its bed, so great is its hurrying speed. We knew, too, the voice of its gurgling whirlpools, suddenly bubbling up on a surface previously quite calm, the roar of its shadows and swift rapids, its constant steady thundering below all mere surface sounds, and that ceaseless tearing of its icy waters at the banks, how it stood up and shouted when the rain fell flat upon its surface, and how its laughter roared out when the wind blew upstream and tried to stop its growing speed. We knew all its sounds and voices, its tumblings and foamings, its unnecessary splashings against the bridges, that self-conscious chatter when there were hills to look on, the affected dignity of its speech when it passed through the little towns, far too important to laugh, and all these faint, sweet whisperings when the sun caught it fairly in some slow curve and poured down upon it till the steam rose. It was full of tricks, too. In its early life, before the great world knew it, there were places in the upper reaches among the Swabian forests, when yet the first whispers of its destiny had not reached it, where it elected to disappear through holes in the ground, to appear again on the other side of the porous limestone hills, and start a new river with another name, leaving, too, so little water in its own bed that we had to climb out and wade and push the canoe through miles of shallows. And a chief pleasure in those early days of its irresponsible youth was to lie low, like Briar Fox, just before the little turbulent tributaries came to join it from the Alps, 
and to refuse to acknowledge them when in, but to run for miles side by side, the dividing line well marked, the very levels different, the Danube utterly declining to recognize the newcomer. Below Passau, however, it gave up this particular trick, for the inn comes in with a thundering power, impossible to ignore, and so pushes and incommodes the parent river that there is hardly room for them in the long twisting gorge that follows, and the Danube is shoved this way and that against the cliffs and forced to hurry itself with great waves and much dashing to and fro in order to get through in time. And during the fight our canoe slipped down from its shoulder to its breast and had the time of its life among the struggling waves. But the Inn taught the old river a lesson, and after Passau it no longer pretended to ignore new arrivals. This was many days back, of course, and since then we had come to know other aspects of the great creature, and across the Bavarian wheat plain of Straubing she wandered so slowly under the blazing June sun that we could well imagine only the surface inches mere water, while below there moved concealed as by a silken mantle a whole army of Undines, passing silently and unseen down to the sea, and very leisurely so, lest they be discovered. Much, too, we forgave her because of her friendliness to the birds and animals that haunted the shores. Cormorants lined the banks in lonely places in rows like short black palings. Gray crows crowded the shingle beds. Storks stood fishing in the vistas of shallower water that opened up between the islands and hawks, swans, and marsh birds of all sorts filled the air with glinting wings and singing petulant cries. It was impossible to feel annoyed with the river's vagaries after seeing a deer leap with a splash into the water at sunrise and swim past the bows of the canoe. And often we saw fawns peering at us from the underbrush or looked straight into the brown eyes of a stag as we charged full tilt round a corner and entered another reach of the river. Foxes, too, everywhere, haunted the banks, tripping daintily among the driftwood and disappearing so suddenly that it was impossible to see how they managed it. But now, after leaving Presburg, everything changed a little, and the Danube became more serious. It ceased trifling. It was halfway to the Black Sea, within seeming distance almost of other, stranger countries, where no tricks would be permitted or understood. It became suddenly grown up and claimed our respect and even our awe. It broke out into three arms, for one thing, that only met again a hundred kilometers farther down, and for a canoe there were no indications which one was intended to be followed. If you take a side channel, said the Hungarian officer we met in the Presburg shop while buying provisions, you may find yourselves, when the flood subsides, forty miles from anywhere, high and dry, and you may easily starve. There are no people, no farms, no fishermen. I warn you not to continue. The river, too, is still rising, and this wind will increase. The rising river did not alarm us in the least, but the matter of being left high and dry by a sudden subsidence of the waters might be serious, and we had consequently laid in an extra stock of provisions. For the rest, the officer's prophecy held true, and the wind blowing down a perfect clear sky increased steadily till it reached the dignity of a westerly gale. It was earlier than usual when we camped, for the sun was a good hour or two from the horizon, and leaving my friend still asleep on the hot sand, I wandered about in desultory examination of our hotel. The island, I found, was less than an acre in extent, a mere sandy bank standing some two or three feet above the level of the river. 
The far end, pointing into the sunset, was covered with flying spray, which the tremendous wind drove off the crests of the broken waves. It was triangular in shape, with the apex upstream. I stood there for several minutes, watching an impetuous crimson flood bearing down with a shouting roar, dashing in waves against the bank as though to sweep it boldly away, and then swirling by in two foaming streams on either side. The ground seemed to shake with the shock and rush, while the furious movement of the willow bushes as the wind poured over them increased the curious illusion that the island itself actually moved. Above, for a mile or two, I could see the great river descending upon me. It was like looking up the slope of a sliding hill, white with foam, and leaping up everywhere to show itself to the sun. The rest of the island was too thickly grown with willows to make walking pleasant, but I made the tour, nevertheless. From the lower end, the light, of course, changed, and the river looked dark and angry. Only the backs of the flying waves were visible, streaked with foam and pushed forcibly by the great puffs of wind that fell upon them from behind. For a short mile, it was visible, pouring in and out among the islands, and then disappearing with a huge sweep into the willows, which closed about it like a herd of monstrous antediluvian creatures crowding down to drink. They made me think of gigantic sponge-like growths that sucked the river up into themselves. They caused it to vanish from sight. They herded there together in such overpowering numbers. Altogether, it was an impressive scene, with its utter loneliness, its bizarre suggestion. And as I gazed long and curiously, a singular emotion began to stir somewhere in the depths of me. Midway, in my delight of the wild beauty, there crept unbidden and unexplained a curious feeling of disquietude. Almost of a lot. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
arm. A rising river, perhaps, always suggests something of the ominous. Many of the little islands I saw before me would probably have been swept away by the morning. This resistless, thundering flood of water touched the sense of awe. Yet I was aware that my uneasiness lay deeper, far than the emotion of awe and wonder. It was not that I felt, nor had it directly to do with the power of the driving wind, the shouting hurricane that might almost carry up a few acres of willows into the air and scatter them like so much chaff over the landscape. The wind was simply enjoying itself, for nothing rose out of the flat landscape to stop it, and I was conscious of sharing its great game with a kind of pleasurable excitement. Yet this novel emotion had nothing to do with the wind. Indeed, so vague was the sense of distress I experienced that it was impossible to trace it to its source and deal with it accordingly, though I was aware somehow that it had to do with my realization of our utter insignificance before this unrestrained power of the elements about me. The huge, grown river had something to do with it, too, a vague, unpleasant idea that we had somehow trifled with these great elemental forces in whose power we lay helpless every hour of the day and night. For here, indeed, they were gigantically at play together, and the sight appealed to the imagination. But my emotion, so far as I could understand it, seemed to attach itself more particularly to the willow bushes, to these acres and acres of willows crowding so thickly growing there, swarming everywhere the eye could reach, pressing upon the river as though to suffocate it, standing in dense array mile after mile beneath the sky, watching, waiting, listening. And apart, quite from the elements, the willows connected themselves subtly with my malaise, attacking the mind insidiously somehow by reason of their vast numbers, and contriving in some way or other to represent to the imagination a new and mighty power, a power, moreover, not altogether friendly to us. Great revelations of nature, of course, never fail to impress in one way or another, and I was no stranger to moods of the kind. Mountains overawe and oceans terrify, while the mystery of great forest exercises a spell particularly its own. But all these, at one point or another, somewhere link on intimately with human life and human experience. They stir comprehensible, even if alarming, emotions. They tend on the whole to exalt. With this multitude of willows, however, it was something far different, I felt. Some essence emanated from them that besieged the heart, a sense of awe, awakened, true, but of awe touched somewhere by a vague terror. Their serried ranks, growing everywhere darker about me as the shadows deepened, moving furiously yet softly in the wind, woke in me the curious and unwelcome suggestion that we had trespassed here upon the borders of an alien world, a world where we were intruders, a world where we were not wanted or invited to remain, where we ran grave risks, perhaps. The feeling, however, though it refused to yield its meaning entirely to analysis, did not at this time trouble me by passing into menace. Yet it never left me quite, even during the very practical business of putting up the tent in a hurricane of wind and building a fire for the stew pot. It remained just enough to bother and perplex, and to rob a most delightful camping ground of a good portion of its charm. To my companion, however, I said nothing for he was a man I considered devoid of imagination. In the first place, I could never have explained to him what I meant, and in the second, he would have laughed stupidly at me if I had. There was a slight depression in the center of the island, and here we pitched the tent. The surrounding willows broke the wind a bit. 
A poor camp, observed the imperturbable Swede, when at last the tent stood upright. No stones and precious little firewood. I'm for moving on early tomorrow, eh? The sand won't hold anything. But the experience of a collapsing tent at midnight had taught us many devices, and we made the cozy gypsy house as safe as possible, and then set about collecting a store of wood to last till bedtime. Willow bushes dropped no branches, and driftwood was our only source of supply. We hunted the shores pretty thoroughly. Everywhere the banks were crumbling as the rising flood tore at them and carried away great portions with a splash and gurgle. The island's much smaller than when we landed, said the accurate Swede. It won't last long at this rate. We'd better drag the canoe close to the tent and be ready to start at a moment's notice. I shall sleep in my clothes. He was little distance off, climbing along the bank, and I heard his rather jolly laugh as he spoke. By Jove, I heard him call a moment later and turned to see what had caused his exclamation. But for the moment he was hidden by the willows and I could not find him. What in the world's this? I heard him cry again, and this time his voice had become serious. I ran up quickly and joined him on the bank. He was looking over the river, pointing at something in the water. Good heavens, it's a man's body, he cried excitedly. Look! A black thing turning over and over in the foaming waves swept rapidly past. It kept disappearing and coming up to the surface again. It was about twenty feet from the shore, and just as it was opposite to where we stood, it lurched round and looked straight at us. We saw its eyes reflecting the sunset and gleaming an odd yellow as the body turned over. Then it gave a swift, gulping plunge and dived out of our sight in a flash. "'An otter by gad!' we exclaimed in the same breath, laughing. It was an otter, alive and out on the hunt, yet it had looked exactly like the body of a drowned man turning helplessly in the current. Far below it came to the surface once again, and we saw its black skin, wet and shining in the sunlight. Then, too, just as we turned back, our arms full of driftwood, another thing happened to recall us to the river bank. This time it really was a man, and what was more, a man in a boat. Now a small boat on the Danube was an unusual sight at any time, but here, in this deserted region, and at flood time, it was so unexpected as to constitute a real event. We stood and stared. Whether it was due to the slanting sunlight or the refraction from the wonderfully illuminated water, I cannot say, but whatever the cause, I found it difficult to focus my sight properly upon the flying apparition. It seemed, however, to be a man standing upright in a sort of flat-bottomed boat, steering with a long oar, and being carried down the opposite shore at a tremendous pace. He apparently was looking across in our direction, but the distance was too great and the light too uncertain for us to make out very plainly what he was about. It seemed to me that he was gesticulating and making signs at us. His voice came across the water to us shouting something furiously, but the wind drowned it so that no single word was audible. There was something curious about the whole appearance, man, boat, signs, voice, that made an impression on me out of all proportion to its cause. He's crossing himself, I cried. Look, he's making the sign of the cross. I believe you're right, the Swede said, shading his eyes with his hand and watching the man out of sight. He seemed to be gone in a moment, melting away down there into the sea of willows where the sun caught them in the bend of the river and turned them into a great crimson wall of beauty. Mist, too, had begun to ruse so that the air was hazy. But what in the world is he doing at nightfall on this flooded river? I said, half to myself. 
Where is he going at such a time, and what did he mean by his signs and shouting? Do you think he wished to warn us about something? He saw our smoke, and thought we were spirits, probably, laughed my companion. These Hungarians believe in all sorts of rubbish. You remember the shopwoman at Presburg warning us that no one had ever landed here because it belonged to some sort of beings outside man's world? I suppose they believe in fairies and elementals, possibly demons, too. That peasant in the boat saw people on the island for the first time in his life, he added, after a slight pause. And it scared him, that's all. The Swede's tone of voice was not convincing, and his manner lacked something that was usually there. I noted the change instantly while he talked, though without being able to label it precisely. If they had enough imagination, I laughed loudly. I remember trying to make as much noise as I could. They might well people a place like this with the old gods of antiquity. The Romans must have haunted all this region more or less with their shrines and sacred groves and elemental deities. The subject dropped, and we returned to our stew-pot, for my friend was not given to imaginative conversation as a rule. Moreover, just then I remember feeling distinctly glad that he was not imaginative. His stolid, practical nature suddenly seemed to me welcome and comforting. It was an admirable temperament, I felt. He could steer down rapids like a red Indian, shoot dangerous bridges and whirlpools better than any white man I ever saw in a canoe. He was a grand fellow for an adventurous trip a tower of strength when untoward things happened. I looked at his strong face and light curly hair as he staggered along under his pile of driftwood, twice the size of mine, and I experienced a feeling of relief. Yes, I was distinctly glad just then that the Swede was what he was, and that he never made remarks that suggested more than they said. The river's still rising, though, he added, as if following out some thoughts of his own and dropping his load with a gasp. This island will be under water in two days if it goes on. I wish the wind would go down, I said. I don't care a fig for the river. The flood, indeed, had no terrors for us. We could get off at ten minutes' notice, and the more water, the better we liked it. It meant increasing current and the obliteration of the treacherous shingle beds that so often threatened to tear the bottom out of our canoe. Contrary to our expectations, the wind did not go down with the sun. It seemed to increase with the darkness howling overhead and shaking the willows round us like straws. Curious sounds accompanied it sometimes, like the explosion of heavy guns, and it fell upon the water and the island in great flat blows of immense power. It made me think of the sounds a planet must make, could we only hear it driving along through space. But the sky kept wholly clear of clouds, and soon after supper the full moon rose in the east, and covered the river and the plain of shouting willows with a light like the day. We lay on the sandy patch beside the fire, smoking, listening to the noises of the night round us, and talking happily of the journey we had already made, and of our plans ahead. The map lay spread in the door of the tent, but the high wind made it hard to study, and presently we lowered the curtain and extinguished the lantern. The firelight was enough to smoke and see each other's faces by, and the sparks flew about overhead like fireworks. A few yards beyond, the river gurgled and hissed, and from time to time a heavy splash announced the falling away of further portions of the bank. Our talk, I noticed, had to do with the faraway scenes and incidents of our first camps in the Black Forest, or of other subjects altogether remote from the present setting, for neither of us spoke for the actual moment more than was necessary, 
almost as though we had agreed tacitly to avoid discussion of the camp and its incidents. Neither the otter nor the boatman, for instance, received the honor of a single mention, though ordinarily these would have furnished discussion for the greater part of the evening. They were, of course, distinct events in such a place. The scarcity of wood made it a business to keep the fire going, for the wind that drove the smoke in our faces wherever we sat helped at the same time to make a forced draft. We took it in turn to make some foraging expeditions into the darkness, and the quantity the Swede brought back always made me feel that he took an absurdly long time finding it, for the fact was I did not care much about being left alone, and yet it always seemed to be my turn to grub about among the bushes or scramble along the slippery banks in the moonlight. The long day's battle with wind and water, such wind and water, had tired us both, and an early bed was the obvious program. Yet neither of us made the move for the tent. We lay there tending the fire, talking in desultory fashion, peering about us in the dense willow bushes, and listening to the thunder of wind and river. The loneliness of the place had entered our very bones, and silence seemed natural, for after a bit the sound of our voices became a trifle unreal and forced, whispering would have been the fitting mode of communication, I felt, and the human voice, always rather absurd amid the roar of the elements, now carried with it something almost illegitimate. It was like talking out loud in church or in some place where it was not lawful, perhaps not quite safe, to be overheard. The eeriness of this lonely island, set among a million willows swept by a hurricane, and surrounded by hurrying deep waters, touched us both, I fancy. Untrodden by man, almost unknown to man, it lay there beneath the moon, remote from human influence, on the frontier of another world, an alien world, a world tenanted by willows only and the souls of willows. And we, in our rashness, had dared to invade it, even to make use of it. Something more than the power of its mystery stirred in me as I lay on the sand, feet to fire, and peered up through the leaves at the stars. For the last time I rose to get firewood. When this is burnt up, I said firmly, I shall turn in and my companion watched me lazily as I moved off into the surrounding shadows. For an unimaginative man, I thought he seemed unusually receptive that night, unusually open to suggestion of things other than sensory. He, too, was touched by the beauty and loneliness of the place. I was not altogether pleased, I remember, to recognize this slight change in him, and instead of immediately collecting sticks, I made my way to the far point of the island where the moonlight on plain and river could be seen to better advantage. The desire to be alone had come suddenly upon me. My former dread returned in force. There was a vague feeling in me I wished to face and probe to the bottom. When I reached the point of sand jutting out among the waves, the spell of the place descended upon me with a positive shock. No mere scenery could have produced such an effect. There was something more here, something to alarm. I gazed across the waste of wild waters. I watched the whispering willows. I heard the ceaseless beating of the tireless wind, and one and all, each in its own way, stirred in me the sensation of a strange distress. But the willows especially, forever they went on chattering and talking among themselves, laughing a little, shrilly, crying out, and sometimes sighing. But what it was they made so much to do about belonged to the secret life of the great plain they inhabited, and it was utterly alien to the world I knew or to that of the wild yet kindly elements. They made me think of a host of beings from another plane of life, another evolution altogether, perhaps, 
all discussing a mystery known only to themselves. I watched them moving busily together, oddly shaking their big bushy heads, twirling their myriad leaves even when there was no wind. They moved of their own will as though alive, and they touched, by some incalculable method, my own keen sense of the horrible. There they stood in the moonlight, like a vast army surrounding our camp, shaking their innumerable silver spears defiantly, formed all ready for an attack. The psychology of places, for some imaginations at least, is very vivid. For the wanderer, especially camp, have their note, either of welcome or rejection. At first it may not always be apparent, because the busy preparations of tent and cooking prevent, but with the first pause, after supper usually, it comes and announces itself, and the note of this willow camp now became unmistakably plain to me. We were interlopers, trespassers. We were not welcomed. The sense of unfamiliarity grew upon me as I stood there watching. We touched the frontier of a region where our presence was resented. For a night's lodging we might perhaps be tolerated, but for a prolonged and inquisitive stay, no, by all of the gods of the trees and wilderness, no. We were the first human influences upon this island, and we were not wanted. The willows were against us. Strange thoughts like these, bizarre fancies born I know not whence, found lodgment in my mind as I stood listening. What, I thought, if, after all, these crouching willows proved to be alive, if suddenly they should rise up like a swarm of living creatures, marshaled by the gods whose territory we had invaded, sweep towards us off the vast swamps, booming overhead in the night, and then settle down. As I looked, it was so easy to imagine they actually moved, crept nearer, retreated a little, huddled together in masses, hostile, waiting for the great wind that should finally start them a-running. I could have sworn their aspect changed a little, and their ranks deepened and pressed more closely together. The melancholy shrill cry of a nightbird sounded overhead, and suddenly I nearly lost my balance as the piece of bank I stood upon fell with a great splash into the river, undermined by the flood. I stepped back just in time and went on hunting for firewood again, half laughing at the odd fancies that crowded so thickly in my mind and cast their spell upon me. I recalled the Swede's remark about moving on next day, and I was just thinking that I fully agreed with him, when I turned with a start and saw the subject of my thoughts standing immediately in front of me. He was quite close. The roar of the elements had covered his approach. "'You've been gone so long,' he shouted above the wind. "'I thought something must have happened to you.' But there was that in his tone, and a certain look in his face as well, that conveyed to me more than his usual words." and in a flash I understood the real reason for his coming. It was because of the spell of the place had entered his soul, too, and he did not like being alone. "'River still rising!' he cried, pointing to the flood in the moonlight. "'And the wind's simply awful!' He always said the same things, but it was the cry for companionship that gave the real importance to his words. "'Lucky!' I cried back. "'Our tent's in the hollow. I think it'll hold all right.' I added something about the difficulty of finding wood in order to explain my absence, but the wind caught my words and flung them across the river so that he did not hear, but just looked at me through the branches, nodding his head. "'Lucky if we get away without disaster,' he shouted, or words to that effect, and I remember feeling half angry with him for putting the thoughts into words, for it was exactly what I felt myself. There was disaster impending somewhere, and the sense of presentment lay unpleasantly upon me. We went back to the fire and made a final blaze, poking it up with our feet. 
We took our last look around, but for the wind the heat would have been unpleasant. I put this thought into words, and I remember my friend's reply struck me oddly, that he would rather have the heat, the ordinary July weather, than this diabolical wind. Everything was snug for the night, the canoe lying turned over beside the tent, with both yellow paddles beneath her, the provision sack hanging from a willow stem, and the washed-up dishes removed to a safe distance from the fire, all ready for the morning meal. We smothered the embers of the fire with sand, then turned in. The flap of the tent door was up, and I saw the branches and the stars in the white moonlight. The shaking willows and the heavy buffetings of the wind against our taut little house were the last things I remember as sleep came down and covered all with its soft and delicious forgetfulness. Suddenly I found myself lying awake, peering from my sandy mattress through the door of the tent. I looked at my watch pinned against the canvas and saw, by the bright moonlight, that it was past twelve o'clock, the threshold of a new day, and I had therefore slept a couple of hours. The Swede was asleep still beside me. The wind howled as before. Something plucked at my heart and made me feel afraid. There was a sense of disturbance in my immediate neighborhood. I sat up quickly and looked out. The trees were swaying violently to and fro as the gusts smote them, but our little bit of green canvas lay snugly safe in the hollow, for the wind passed over it without meeting enough resistance to make it vicious. The feeling of disquietude did not pass, however, and I crawled quietly out of the tent to see if our belongings were safe. I moved carefully so as not to waken my companion. A curious excitement was on me. I was halfway out, kneeling on all fours, when my eye first took in the tops of the bushes opposite, with their moving tracery of leaves, made shapes against the sky. I sat back on my haunches and stared. It was incredible, surely, but there, opposite and slightly above me, were shapes of some indeterminate sort among the willows, and as the branches swayed in the wind they seemed to group themselves about these shapes— forming a series of monstrous outlines that shifted rapidly beneath the moon. Close, about fifty feet in front of me, I saw these things. My first instinct was to waken my companion, that he too might see them, but something made me hesitate. The sudden realization, probably, that I should not welcome corroboration, and meanwhile I crouched there staring in amazement with smarting eyes. I was wide awake. I remember saying to myself that I was not dreaming. They first became properly visible, these huge figures, just within the tops of the bushes, immense, bronze-colored, moving, and wholly independent of the swaying of the branches. I saw them plainly and noted, now I came to examine them more calmly, that they were very much larger than human, and indeed that something in their appearance proclaimed them not to be human at all. Certainly they were not merely the moving tracery of the bushes against the moonlight. They shifted independently. They rose upwards in a continuous stream from earth to sky, vanishing utterly as soon as they reached the dark of the sky. They were interlaced with another, making a great column, and I saw their limbs and huge bodies melting in and out of each other, forming the serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees. They were nude, fluid shapes passing up the bushes, within the leaves almost rising up in a living column into the heavens. Their faces I never could see. Unceasingly they poured upwards, swaying in great bending curves with a hue of dull bronze upon their skins. I stared, trying to force every atom of vision from my eyes. For a long time I thought they must every moment disappear and resolve themselves into the movements of the branches 
and proved to be an optical illusion. I searched everywhere for a proof of reality, when all the while I understood quite well that the standard of reality had changed. For the longer I looked, the more certain I became that these figures were real and living, though perhaps not according to the standards that the camera and the biologist would insist upon. Far from feeling fear, I was possessed with a sense of awe and wonder, such as I have never known. I seemed to be gazing at the personified elemental forces of this haunted and primeval region. Our intrusion had stirred the powers of the place into activity. It was we who were the cause of the disturbance, and my brain filled to bursting with stories and legends of the spirits and deities of places that have been acknowledged and worshipped by men in all ages of the world's history. But before I could arrive at any possible explanation, something impelled me to go farther out, and I crept forward on the sand and stood upright. I felt the ground still warm under my bare feet. The wind tore at my hair and face, and the sound of the river burst upon my ears with a sudden roar. These things, I knew, were real, and proved that my senses were acting normally, yet the figures still rose from heaven to earth, silent, majestically, in a great spiral of grace and strength that overwhelmed me at length with a genuine deep emotion of worship. I felt that I must fall down and worship, absolutely worship. Perhaps in another minute I might have done so, when a gust of wind swept against me with such force that it blew me sideways, and I nearly stumbled and fell. It seemed to shake the dream violently out of me. At least it gave me another point of view somehow. The figure still remained, still ascended into heaven from the heart of the night, but my reason at last began to assert itself. It must be a subjective experience, I argued, none the less real for that, but still subjective. The moonlight and the branches combined to work out these pictures upon the mirror of my imagination, and for some reason I projected them outwards and made them appear objective. I knew this must be the case, of course. I took courage and began to move forward across the open patches of sand. By Jove, though, was it all a hallucination? Was it merely subjective? Did not my reason argue in the old futile way from the little standard of the known? I only know that great column of figures ascended darkly into the sky for what seemed a very long period of time, and with a very complete measure of reality as most men are accustomed to gauge reality. And once they were gone and the immediate wonder of their great presence had passed, fear came down upon me with a cold rush. The esoteric meaning of this lonely and haunted region suddenly flamed up within me, and I began to tremble dreadfully. I took a quick look round, a look of horror that came near to panic, calculating vainly ways of escape, and then, realizing how helpless I was to achieve anything really effective, I crept back silently into the tent and lay down again upon my sandy mattress, first lowering the door curtain to shut out the sight of the willows in the moonlight and then burying my head as deeply as possible beneath the blankets to deaden the sound of the terrifying wind. As though further to convince me that I had not been dreaming, I remember that it was a long time before I fell again into a troubled and restless sleep, and even then only the upper crusts of me slept, and underneath there was something that never quite lost consciousness, but lay alert and on the watch. But the second time I jumped up with a genuine start of terror, it was neither the wind nor the river that woke me, but the slow approach of something that caused the sleeping portion of me to grow smaller and smaller, till at last it vanished altogether, and I found myself sitting bolt upright, listening. Outside there was a sound of multitudinous little patterings, 
They had been coming, I was aware, for a long time, and in my sleep they had first became audible. I sat there nervously, wide awake, as though I had not slept at all. It seemed to me that my breathing came with difficulty, and that there was a great weight upon the surface of my body. In spite of the hot night, I felt clammy with cold and shivered. Something surely was pressing steadily against the sides of the tent and weighing down upon it from above. Was it the body of the wind? Was it the pattering rain, the dripping of the leaves, the spray blown from the river by the wind and gathering in big drops? I thought quickly of a dozen things. Then, suddenly, the explanation leaped into my mind. A bough from the poplar, the only large tree on the island, had fallen with the wind. Still, half caught by the other branches, it would fall with the next gust and crush us, and meanwhile its leaves brushed and tapped upon the tight canvas surface of the tent. I raised a loose flap and rushed out, calling to the Swede to follow. But when I got out and stood upright, I saw that the tent was free. There was no hanging bough. There was no rain or spray. Nothing approached. A cold gray light filtered down through the bushes and lay on the faintly gleaming sand. Stars still crowded the sky directly overhead, and the wind howled magnificently, but the fire no longer gave out any glow, and I saw the east reddening in streaks through the trees. Several hours must have passed since I stood there before watching the ascending figures, and the memory of it now came back to me horribly, like an evil dream. Oh, how tired it made me feel, that ceaseless raging wind! Yet though the deep lassitude of a sleepless night was on me, my nerves were tingling with the activity of an equally tireless apprehension, and all idea of repose was out of the question. The river, I saw, had risen further. Its thunder filled the air, and a fine spray made itself felt through my thin sleeping shirt. Yet nowhere did I discover the slightest evidence of anything to cause alarm. This deep, prolonged disturbance in my heart remained wholly unaccounted for. My companion had not stirred when I called him, and there was no need to waken him now. I looked about me carefully, noting everything. The turned-over canoe, the yellow paddles, two of them, I'm certain, the provision rack and the extra lantern hanging together from the tree, and crowding everywhere about me, enveloping all the willows, those endless shaking willows. A bird uttered its morning cry, and a string of duck passed with whirring flight overhead in the twilight. The sand whirled, dry and stinging, about my bare feet in the wind. I walked round the tent and then went out a little way into the bush so that I could see across the river to the farther landscape, and the same profound yet indefinable emotion of distress seized upon me again as I saw the interminable sea of bushes stretching to the horizon looking ghostly and unreal in the wan light of dawn. I walked softly here and there, still puzzling over that odd sound of infinite pattering, and of that pressure upon the tent that had wakened me. It must have been the wind, I reflected, the wind bearing upon the loose, hot sand, driving the dry particles smartly against the taut canvas, the wind dropping heavy upon our fragile roof. Yet all the time my nervousness and malaise increased appreciably. I crossed over to the farther shore and noted how the coastline had altered in the night and what masses of sand the river had torn away. I dipped my hands and feet into the cool current and bathed my forehead. Already there was a glow of sunrise in the sky and the exquisite freshness of coming day. On my way back, I passed purposely beneath the very bushes where I had seen the column of figures rising into the air, and midway among the clumps I suddenly found myself overtaken by a sense of vast terror. 
From the shadows a large figure went swiftly by. Someone passed me, as sure as ever man did. It was a great staggering blow from the wind that helped me forward again, and once out in the more open space the sense of terror diminished strangely. The winds were about and walking, I remember saying to myself, for the winds often move like great presences under the trees, and altogether the fear that hovered about me was such an unknown and immense kind of fear, so unlike anything I'd ever felt before, that it woke a sense of awe and wonder in me that did much to counteract its worst effects. And when I reached a high point in the middle of the island from which I could see the wide stretch of river, crimson in the sunrise, the whole magical beauty of it all was so overpowering that a sort of wild yearning woke in me and almost brought a cry up into the throat. But this cry found no expression, for as my eyes wandered from the plain beyond to the island round me and noted our little tent half hidden among the willows, a dreadful discovery leaped out at me, compared to which my terror of the walking wind seemed as nothing at all. For a change, I thought, had somehow come about in the arrangement of the landscape. It was not that my point of vantage gave me a different view, but that an alteration had apparently been effected in the relation of the tent to the willows, and of the willows to the tent. Surely the bushes now crowded much closer, unnecessarily, unpleasantly close. They had moved nearer, creeping with silent feet over the shifting sands, drawing imperceptibly nearer by soft, unhurried movements. The willows had come closer during the night. But had the wind moved them, or had they moved of themselves? I recalled the sound of infinite small patterings and the pressure upon the tent and upon my own heart that caused me to wake in terror. I swayed for a moment in the wind like a tree, finding it hard to keep my upright position on the sandy hillock. There was a suggestion here of personal agency, of deliberate intention, of aggressive hostility, and it terrified me into a sort of rigidity. Then the reaction followed quickly. The idea was so bizarre, so absurd, that I felt inclined to laugh, but the laughter came no more readily than the cry, for the knowledge that my mind was so receptive to such dangerous imaginings brought the additional terror that it was through our minds and not through our physical bodies that the attack would come and was coming. The wind buffeted me about, and very quickly, it seemed, the sun came up over the horizon, for it was after four o'clock, and I must have stood on that little pinnacle of sand longer than I knew, afraid to come down to close quarters with the willows. I returned quietly, creepily, to the tent, first taking another exhaustive look around, and, yes, I confess it, making a few measurements. I paced out on the warm sand the distance between the willows and the tent, making a note of the shortest distance particularly. I crawled stealthily into my blankets, my companion, to all appearances, still slept soundly, and I was glad that this was so. Provided my experience were not corroborated, I could find strength somehow to deny them, perhaps. With the daylight I could persuade myself that was all subjective hallucination, a fantasy of the night, a projection of the excited imagination. Nothing further came in to disturb me, and I fell asleep almost at once, utterly exhausted, yet still in dread of hearing again that weird sound of multitudinous pattering or of feeling the pressure upon my heart that had made it difficult to breathe. The sun was high in the heavens when my companion woke me from a heavy sleep and announced that the porridge was cooked and there was just time to bathe. The grateful smell of frizzling bacon entered the tent door. River still rising, he said, and several islands out in midstream have disappeared altogether. Our own island's much smaller. Any wood left? I asked sleepily. 
The wood in the island will finish tomorrow in a dead heat, he laughed, but there's enough to last us till then. I plunged in from the point of the island, which had indeed altered a lot in size and shape during the night, and was swept down in a moment to the landing place opposite the tent. The water was icy, and the banks flew by like the country from an express train. Bathing under such conditions was an exhilarating operation, and the terror of the night seemed cleansed out of me by a process of evaporation in the brain. The sun was blazing hot. Not a cloud showed itself anywhere. The wind, however, had not abated one little jot. Quite suddenly, when the implied meaning of the Swede's words flashed across me showing that he no longer wished to leave post-haste and had changed his mind, enough to last till tomorrow, he seemed we should stay on the island another night. It struck me as odd. The night before, he was so positive the other way. How had the change come about? Great crumblings of the bank occurred at breakfast, with heavy splashings and clouds of spray which the wind brought into our frying pan and my fellow traveler talked incessantly about the difficulty of the Vienna pest steamers must have to find the channel in flood. But the state of his mind interested and impressed me far more than the state of the river or the difficulties of the steamers. He had changed somehow since the evening before. His manner was different. A trifle excited, a trifle shy, with a sort of suspicion about his voice and gestures, I hardly know how to describe it now in cold blood, but at the time I remember being quite certain of one thing, that he had become frightened. He ate very little breakfast, and for once omitted to smoke his pipe. He had the map spread open beside him and kept studying its markings. We'd better get off sharp in an hour, I said presently, feeling for an opening that must bring him indirectly to a partial confession at any rate, and his answer puzzled me uncomfortably. Rather, if they'll let us... Who let us? The elements? I asked quickly, with affected indifference. The powers of this awful place, whoever they are, he replied, keeping his eyes on the map. The gods are here, if they are anywhere at all in the world. The elements are always the true immortals, I replied, laughing as naturally as I could manage, yet knowing quite well that my face reflected my true feelings when he looked up gravely at me and spoke across the smoke. We shall be fortunate if we get away without further disaster. This was exactly what I had dreaded, and I screwed myself up to the point of the direct question. It was like agreeing to allow the dentist to extract the tooth. It had to come anyhow in the long run, and the rest was all pretense. Further disaster? Why, what's happened? For one thing, the steering paddle's gone, he said quietly. The steering paddle's gone, I repeated, greatly excited, for this was our rudder, and the Danube in flood without rudder was suicide. But what? And there's a tear in the bottom of the canoe, he added, with a genuine little tremor in his voice. I continued staring at him, able only to repeat the words in his face somewhat foolishly. There, in the heat of the sun and on this burning sand, I was aware of a freezing atmosphere descending round us. I got up to follow him, for he merely nodded his head gravely and led the way towards the tent a few yards on the other side of the fireplace. The canoe still lay there, as I had last seen her on the night, ribs uppermost, the paddles, or rather, the paddle, on the sand beside her. There's only one, he said, stooping to pick it up, and here's the rent in the baseboard. 
It was on the tip of my tongue to tell him that I had clearly noticed two paddles a few hours before, but a second impulse made me think better of it, and I said nothing. I approached to see. There was a long, finely made tear in the bottom of the canoe where a little slither of wood had been neatly taken clean out. It looked as if the tooth of a sharp rock or snag had eaten down her length, and investigation showed that the hole went through. Had we launched out in her without observing it, we most inevitably would have foundered. At first the water would have made the wood swell so as to close the hole, but once out in midstream the water must have poured in, and the canoe, never more than two inches above the surface, would have filled and sunk very rapidly. There, you see, an attempt to prepare a victim for the sacrifice— I heard him saying, more to himself than to me, two victims, rather, he added as he bent over and ran his fingers along the slit. I began to whistle, a thing I always do unconsciously when utterly nonplussed and purposely paid no attention to his words. I was determined to consider them foolish. It wasn't there last night, he said presently, straightening up from his examination and looking anywhere but at me. We must have scratched her in landing, of course, I stopped whistling to say. The stones are very sharp. I stopped abruptly, for at that moment he turned round and met my eyes squarely. I knew just as well as he did how impossible my explanation was. There were no stones to begin with. And then there's this to explain, too, he added quietly, handing me the paddle and pointing to the blade. A new and curious emotion spread freezingly over me as I took and examined it. The blade was scraped down all over, beautifully scraped, as though someone had sandpapered it with care, making it so thin that the first vigorous stroke must have snapped it off at the elbow. One of us walked in his sleep and did this thing, I said feebly, or, or it had been filed by the constant stream of sand particles blown against it by the wind, perhaps. Ah, said the Swede, turning away, laughing a little, you can explain everything. The same wind that caught the steering paddle and flung it so near the bank that it fell in with the next lump that crumbled, I called out after him, absolutely determined to find an explanation for everything he showed me. I see, he shouted back, turning his head to look at me before disappearing among the willow bushes. Once alone with these perplexing evidences of personal agency, I thought my first thought took the form of, one of us must have done this thing, and it certainly was not I. But my second thought decided how impossible it was to suppose, under all the circumstances, that either of us had done it, that my companion, the trusted friend of a dozen similar expeditions, could have knowingly had a hand in it, was a suggestion not to be entertained for a moment. Equally absurd seemed the explanation that this imperturbable and densely practical nature had suddenly become insane and was busied with insane purposes. Yet the fact remained that what disturbed me most and kept my fear actively alive, even in this blaze of sunshine and wild beauty, was the clear certainty that some curious alteration had come about in his mind, that he was nervous, timid, suspicious, aware of goings-on he did not speak about, watching a series of secret and hitherto unmentionable events, waiting, in a word, for a climax that he expected, and, I thought, expected very soon. This grew up in my mind intuitively. I hardly knew how. I made a hurried examination of the tent and its surroundings, but the measurements of the night remained the same. 
There were deep hollows formed in the sand I now noticed for the first time, basin-shaped into various depths and sizes, varying from that of a teacup to a large bowl. The wind, no doubt, was responsible for these miniature craters, just as it was for lifting the paddle and tossing it towards the water. The rent in the canoe was the only thing that seemed quite inexplicable, and, after all, it was conceivable that a sharp point had caught it when we landed. The examination I made of the shore did not assist this theory, but all the same I clung to it with that diminishing portion of my intelligence which I called my reason. An explanation of some kind was an absolute necessity, just as some working explanation of the universe is necessary, however absurd, to the happiness of every individual who seeks to do his duty in the world and face the problems of life. The simile seemed to me, at the time, an exact parallel. I at once set the pitch melting, and presently the Swede joined me at the work, though under the best conditions in the world a canoe could not be safe for traveling till the following day. I drew his attention casually to the hollows in the sand. Yes, he said, I know. They're all over the island, but you can explain them, no doubt. Wind, of course, I answered without hesitation. Have you never watched those little whirlwinds in the street that twist and twirl everything in a circle? The sand's loose enough to yield, that's all. He made no reply, and we worked on in silence for a bit. I watched him all the time, and I had an idea he was watching me. He seemed, too, to be always listening attentively to something I could not hear, or perhaps for something that he expected to hear, for he kept turning about and staring into the bushes, and up into the sky and out across the water where it was visible through the openings among the willows. Sometimes he even put his hand to his ear and held it there for several minutes. He said nothing to me, however, about it, and I asked no questions. And meanwhile, as he mended that torn canoe with the skill and address of a red Indian, I was glad to notice his absorption in the work, for there was a vague dread in my heart that he would speak of the changed aspect of the willows, and if he had noticed that, my imagination could no longer be held a sufficient explanation of it. At length, after a long pause, he began to talk. Queer thing, he added in a hurried sort of voice, as though he wanted to say something and get it over. Queer thing, I mean, about that otter last night. I'd expected something so totally different that he caught me with surprise, and I looked up sharply. Shows how lonely this place is. Otters are awfully shy things. I don't mean that, of course, he interrupted. I mean, do you think, did you think it really was an otter? What else? In the name of heaven, what else? You know, I saw it before you did, and at first it seemed so much bigger than an otter. The sunset, as you looked upstream, magnified it, or something, I replied. He looked at me absently a moment as though his mind were busy with other things. It had such extraordinary yellow eyes, he went on, half to himself. That was the sun, too, I laughed a trifle boisterously. I suppose you'll wonder next if that fellow in the boat... I suddenly decided not to finish the sentence. He was in the act again of listening, turning his head to the wind, and something in the expression of his face made me halt. The subject dropped, and we went on with our caulking. Apparently, he had not noticed my unfinished sentence. Five minutes later, however, he looked at me across the canoe, the smoking pitch in his hand, his face exceedingly grave. I did rather wonder, if you want to know, he said slowly, what that thing in the boat was. I remember thinking at the time it was not a man. The whole business seemed to rise quite suddenly out of the water. 
I laughed again boisterously in his face, but this time there was impatience and a strain of anger, too, in my feeling. Look here now, I cried. This place is quite queer enough without going out of our way to imagine things. That boat was an ordinary boat, and the man in it was an ordinary man, and they were both going downstream as fast as they could lick. And that otter was an otter, so don't let's play the fool about it. He looked steadily at me with the same grave expression. He was not in the least annoyed. I took courage from his silence. And, for heaven's sake, I went on, don't keep pretending you hear things, because it only gives me the jumps, and there's nothing to hear but the river and this cursed old thundering wind. You fool, he answered in a low, shocked voice, you utter fool. That's just the way all victims talk, as if you don't understand just as well as I do. He sneered with scorn in his voice and a sort of resignation. The best thing you can do is to keep quiet and try to hold your mind as firm as possible. This feeble attempt at self-deception only makes the truth harder when you're forced to meet it. My little effort was over, and I found nothing more to say, for I knew quite well his words were true, and that I was a fool, not he. Up to a certain stage in the adventure, he kept ahead of me easily, and I think I felt annoyed to be out of it, to be thus proved less psychic, less sensitive than himself to these extraordinary happenings, and half ignorant all the time of what was going on under my very nose. He knew from the very beginning, apparently, but at the moment I wholly missed the point of his words about the necessity of their being a victim, and that we ourselves were destined to satisfy the want. I dropped all pretense thenceforward, but thenceforward likewise my fear increased steadily to the climax. But you're quite right about one thing, he added before the subject passed, and that is we're wiser not to talk about it, or even to think about it, because what one thinks finds expression in words, and what one says happens. That afternoon, while the canoe dried and hardened, we spent trying to fish, testing the leak, collecting woods, and watching the enormous flood of rising water. Masses of driftwood swept near our shores sometimes, and we fished for them with long willow branches. The island grew perceptibly smaller as the banks were torn away with great gulps and splashes. The weather kept brilliantly fine till about four o'clock, and then for the first time in three days the wind showed signs of abating. Clouds began to gather in the southwest, spreading thence slowly over the sky. To quote the Swede, You're right about one thing, we're wiser not to talk about it, or even to think about it, because what one thinks finds expression in words, and what one says happens. To quote Blackwood, My fundamental interest, I suppose, is signs and proofs of other powers that lie hidden in us all, the extension, in other words, of human faculty. So many of my stories, therefore, deal with extension of consciousness, speculative and imaginative treatment of possibilities outside our normal range of consciousness. I believe it possible 
for our consciousness to change and grow, and that with this change we may become aware of a new universe. Well, as mentioned, Blackwood's life hews closely to his work, not only in his use of the natural world, but his central characters tend to be optimistic and lonely people, like Blackwood, and they tend to be, as was he, a combination of outdoorsman and mystic. Well, I can't wait for you to hear the second and final part of The Willows, and that will be next week here in the Nook. Oh, and sometime thereafter, can't say when, we'll hear another Algernon Blackwood touchstone tale, The Wendigo. That will be soon. The Willows is being read to us by Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick. If you recall, Stephen read Ori Higri's It's Just Tearing Me Apart in show 69, and also Joe McKinney's Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens in week one of this year's Stoker shows. To reiterate, Mr. Kilpatrick lives in central Virginia. He has a culinary arts degree and is an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, how appropriate, and board games. He works in information technology and recently began volunteering in prisons. For relaxation, he enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. You can find him online at www.stevenski.com. Don't rush to write it down. We'll post that on the Tales to Terrify homepage. You know where that is. And that, leaving you treading water, will be that, children of the night. By the way, let me apologize. It is that time of year when the things that sprout and grow out there take refuge in my throat and chest, so if I sound faint and queasy tonight, it's only summer blooming in me. So... Arise and stretch yourselves, get the blood flowing, grab your rain gear, and prepare for the long walk home. It's become late. The way home should be mostly unpeopled, so if you see things abroad in the mists, and there are mists tonight, if you see walkers in the night, and there will be walkers, know that they are probably just men and women. Probably. The trees will provide cover for you. Avoid the beach. There are... Well, we'll not bring that up. I'm more or less certain you'll make it home all right. You'll have a nibble in the kitchen. You'll hug the cat. You'll take yourself to bed. Slip under the dry, protecting covers in the cool, dehydrated air. And you will thank all you hold as your protector in the night that you are not a bed on that behold bewillowed island in the rushing stream of the Danube as the wind howls you into pleasant dreams. Hmm? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.